0: New York, this is a Democracy Now! What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a White's name. White right? would you like me to condemn? White's proud Boys.
1: Right. Proud Boys,
0: stand back and stand by. Nearly three years after Donald Trump called on the far-right Proud Boys to stand by, one of its leaders, Joseph Biggs, has been sentenced to 17 years in prison for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Another Proud Boy got 15. We'll get the latest. Then we go to Minnesota, where water protectors on trial facing five years in prison for engaging in a peaceful protest against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline.
2: I'm here for my daughter and my daughter's daughter and all their children and grandchildren. I'm here because there is a real climate crisis and nobody seems to care. Then,
0: as cleanup efforts begin after Hurricane Idalia, we'll speak to Rihanna Gunwright, one of the architects of the Green New Deal.
3: There's a moral imperative to make sure that in the green transition, the same people who bear the brunt of our reliance on fossil fuels are not the same people who uh, the green transition is being built on their backs.
0: And we'll look at why thousands of Afghan evacuees are being arbitrarily detained overseas as they wait for approval to come to the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Mimi Goodman. Trump pleaded not guilty to 13 felony charges over efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. Trump also requested his case be tried separately from his 18 co-defendants. Trump's legal team argued an October 23rd start date for the trial does not leave enough time to prepare, while some of his co-defendants have asked for a speedy trial. Meanwhile, the release date for the Fulton County Grand Jury's final report is set for September 8th. The judge said Trump's Georgia trial will be televised and live-streamed. In related news, Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp dismissed calls to launch impeachment proceedings against Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis, who brought the racketeering case. One of Trump's Georgia co-defendants, lawyer John Eastman, appeared on Fox News this week, where he admitted to pressuring then-Vice President Mike Pence to delay certification of the election.
1: I explicitly told
4: Vice President Pence in the Oval Office on January 4th that even though it was an open issue under the circumstances we had, I thought it was the weaker argument and it would be foolish to exercise such power even if he had it. What I recommended, and I've said this repeatedly, is that he accede to requests from more than 100 state legislators in the swing states to give them a week to try and sort out the impact of what everybody acknowledged was
5: illegality in the conduct of the election.
0: A federal judge sentenced two former leaders of the Proud Boys, Joseph Biggs and Zachary Reel, to 17 and 15 years in prison, respectively, for the seditious conspiracy to keep Donald Trump in power by attacking the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The sentences are some of the stiffest yet over January 6, though prosecutors had sought 30-plus years for the two men. A lawyer for Biggs spoke after his sentence.
1: If your president tells you your country's been stolen, the country that people fought and died for, people are trying to take your vote from you, how are you supposed to react to that? And these people reacted violently and to their detriment. Um, I, I think these cases are grotesquely overcharged.
0: Both men broke down in court. Two other Proud Boys, Dominic Pizzola and Ethan Ordine, are receiving their sentences today. Former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario, will be sentenced Tuesday. We'll have more after headlines. The African Union has suspended Gabon's membership following Wednesday's military coup in ouster of the longtime president, Ali Bongo. The UN has also condemned the coup, but many Gabonese have voiced support for the military takeover
5: it's important to remember that we've been waiting for this release for several years the bongo regime has been sharing out gabon's wealth for several years they've promoted corruption and unemployment so we're tired of it we've been waiting for this with real satisfaction it's a real pleasure today i'm proud to say that gabon's independence took place on august 30th 2023
0: meanwhile main opposition leader albert ando Osa who lost his challenge to Ali Bongo in Saturday's contested election in Gabon, is calling for the junta to complete the ballot count and hand over power to civilians. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, AFP reports at least 48 people were killed by Congolese soldiers Wednesday as armed forces cracked down on a protest against United Nations peacekeepers in the city of Goma. Dozens of others were wounded, while over 150 people were reportedly arrested. The demonstration was led by a Christian sect. U.N. peacekeeping efforts in the DRC have been widely criticized, as many communities say their presence has done little to prevent conflict. Violence has soared in recent years, particularly in the eastern region of the DRC." Chile's government is launching a nationwide search for over a thousand people who are forcibly disappeared during the U.S.-backed military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. Chilean President Gabriel Boric made the announcement Wednesday ahead of the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the democratically elected President Salvador Allende, who died in the palace September 11, 1973. Survivors of the Pinochet regime have long demanded justice.
2: We had the hope that they were alive, but as years went by,
0: we realized they weren't. At least they should have told us what happened to them, what was done to them. That is the worst part of these 50 years. In Colombia, a truth and justice tribunal found the US trained general Maria Montoya responsible for 130 extrajudicial killings and disappearances between 2002 and 3 Montoya is accused of deliberately mislabeling civilians killed by his soldiers as enemy combatants as part of the false positives scandal over 6000 civilians including children and disabled people were killed by Colombian soldiers from 2002 to 2008 who then classified their victims as fighters from the FARC—that's the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The Biden administration Thursday sent another deportation flight to Haiti with at least 60 asylum seekers. This came a day after the State Department urged U.S. citizens to immediately leave Haiti due to worsening violence. Immigrant rights advocates condemned the deportations. This is Gerline Joseph, executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance.
3: To really highlight the inhuman nature of those deportation, I want to share one of the people who got deported this morning is a woman who has been in detention since February. She has been dealing with chronic pain, extreme uh, medical uh, uh, um, issues. She fainted three times while in detention in Florida. Upon return from the hospital, she was put on a plane and deported this morning. She is stuck with nowhere to go, and her family in the United States have been calling and asking to find
6: some help for her.
0: Tens of thousands of Haitian asylum seekers, including children, have been deported since President Biden took office despite international condemnation and calls for humanitarian relief as Haiti faces a spiraling political and economic crisis with gangs gaining control of large portions of the country. The U.S. State Department has approved an $80 million military aid package to Taiwan under a program typically used for sovereign states. Beijing has condemned the move, seen as another challenge to its sovereignty over Taiwan beleaguered Supreme Court Justice Thomas Claren- uh, Clarence Thomas acknowledged he took four flights on the private jet of conservative megadonor Harlan Crowe last year as part of his annual financial filing. He also amended previous filings with allegedly inadvertently omitted information. This comes after ProPublica and others revealed Thomas had failed to disclose at least 38 luxury trips from Crow and three other right-wing billionaires for decades. Justice Thomas and his family also sold three properties to Crow. Rhode Island Democratic Senator Sheldon White House said, quote, this late come effort at cleanup on aisle three won't deter us from fully investigating the massive secret right wing billionaire influence in which this court is admired. Texas's ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth goes into effect today after the state Supreme Court overruled an earlier decision by a Texas judge who found the ban unconstitutional. The law will not only block transgender youth from accessing new care, it will force those already on transition medications to wean off them. Rights groups are appealing. Separately, a federal judge temporarily blocked a Texas law that would, district, that would restrict drag performances while the court reviews the case. Meanwhile, Canada issued a travel advisory for its LGBTQ citizens visiting the United States due to the recent flurry of discriminatory laws passed by Republicans. And in San Francisco, tech workers and other protesters gathered outside the Google Cloud Next conference this week to call out Google's contract with Israel, which uses the cloud service for its public sector and military, including to surveil Palestinians. This is activist Ariel Koren.
6: We are here representing the No Tech for Apartheid campaign. We're a coalition of Google workers and community members who have coalesced to send a strong message to the company that Google workers are refusing to allow their labor to be used to power apartheid violence against Palestinian people.
0: Project Nimbus is a $1.2 billion artificial intelligence and computer technology agreement between Google, Amazon, Web Services and the Israeli government, which went into effect in July 2021. A statement from the movement No Tech for Apartheid said, quote, technology should be used to bring people together, not enable apartheid, ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism, unquote. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Two leaders of the far-right Proud Boys have been given lengthy prison sentences for their role in the January 6th insurrection. Joseph Biggs, who was a top lieutenant in the Proud Boys, received a 17-year sentence. Zachary Reel, the former head of Proud Boys in Philadelphia, got a 15-year sentence. They had been convicted of seditious conspiracy in May. But the sentences are only about half as long as what federal prosecutors had recommended. The U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Kelly did agree to apply a terrorism enhancement in calculating their sentences. Judge Kelly, who was appointed by Donald Trump, talked about what happened on January 6, 2021, saying, quote, "...that day broke our tradition of peacefully transferring power. The mob brought an entire branch of government to heel," he said. After the sentencing, Biggs and Reels' attorney, Norman Pattis, spoke to reporters outside the courthouse.
1: Where's Donald Trump in all of this? He stood on the ellipse, basically told people, 74 million of his followers. The election stolen. Go to the go to the Capitol. Fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Some people listen to him. Uh, were they supposed to know that he was full of hot air? Um, and was he full of hot air? I look forward to his trials. I look forward to seeing him testify someday.
5: So do you blame President Donald Trump for January 6th and the actions of the prevalence?
1: Do I blame him? As Judge Kelly noted in the REL sentencing, Um, It's a mitigating factor, but not a justifying or excusing factor. But you know, if your president tells you, your country's been stolen, the country that people fought and died for, people are trying to take your vote from you, how are you supposed to react to that? And these people reacted violently and to their detriment.
0: Ahead of the sentencing, both the Proud Boys broke down in court, crying with Rell saying, quote, I'm done peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. Seattle Proud Boys leader Ethan Nordine, is scheduled to be sentenced today, along with Dominic Pizzola. And on Tuesday, Enrique Tarrio will be sentenced. He's the former national leader of the Proud Boys. Federal prosecutors are seeking a 33-year sentence for Tario. Joining us now is Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost, author of the book We are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Andy. Talk about what happened in court yesterday and the significance of these 17- and 15-year sentences, though long, they are about half as long as what the prosecutors requested. And as you answer that question, talk about the enhanced charge of terrorism and what the judge did with that.
4: Right. Uh, well, you know, these are, as you said, two uh, lieutenants who have been with the gang for a, a long time, um, pushing the same rhetoric that made January 6th happen. Um, both of them sobbed in court, um, saying they regret their actions, that, you know, this was January 6th was a slip up of the mind. Uh, uh, but but we know uh, from evidence in in both their cases and uh, throughout their violent history, you know, Four days after the news networks called the election for Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biggs, the gang's top propagandist, I would say, uh, published a blog titled The Second Civil War is closer than you might think. Buy ammo, clean your guns. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Um, these guys, alongside Donald Trump, immediately after Trump lost, saw January 6th as their last stand for Trump. Um, so, So they were... There was an air through their sobs uh, right before their sentencing uh, of, of, you know, they were claiming that this was a slip up during the day that they followed Donald Trump erroneously. But we know for a fact um, that these guys were ready and willing uh, to to bring violence to the situation for Trump, just as they always have now. The sentences that each of these uh, lieutenants scott show um, that the Justice Department and now uh, the judge overseeing the case, Tim Kelly, um, see the Proud Boys as the uh, one of, if not the top uh, uh, organizers, planners and executors of the riots on January 6th. I mean, these are, with the terrorism enhance- enhancement, s- very serious uh, uh, charges. Seditious conspiracy is a rare charge historically brought against terrorists working on American soil. Um, uh, this, is, this is very serious. Now, will the, uh, the sentences have any sort of tamping down effect on our overall extremist crisis? I don't think so. Um, But certainly the 15 and 17 year sentences for two top lieutenants of the Proud Boys doesn't bode well for our last three defendants, especially the chairman Enrique Tarrio, who uh, the government argued successfully oversaw the entire thing from start to finish on January 6th.
0: I want to go back to January 6th, 2021. This is Proud Boy Joe Biggs in a selfie video outside the Capitol.
4: Stormed the Capitol. Yeah, took did. the mother f-ing place. Back. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much oh, fun. So God. much America. So Ooh. much America. War uh, January 6 will be a day in infamy.
0: So, tell us more about who Proud Boy Joe Biggs is, and also his relationship with Infowars and Alex Jones, a correspondent. Um, tell us about him.
4: Sure, he's a an army veteran. Uh, he was in the army for eight years, did tours of Iraq, and in fact uh, got a a head injury there. Um, he's also a former Infowars correspondent, and and through that um, was able to consistently put the Proud Boys in front of a huge, sweeping audience that Alex Jones enjoys. He was their top propagandist, like I said, you know, throughout um, um, their careers. He's putting Proud Boys helping Alex putting proud boys in front of Alex Jones to to help him celebrate the violence that they were committing against the GOP's perceived enemies. And, you know, one of these defendants, Ethan Nordeen, went on Alex Jones's show uh, in 2018 after knocking a protester out cold. Alex Jones said it was one of the most beautiful American moments he'd ever seen. And so Joe Biggs was instrumental in helping the Proud Boys um, become a big part of the GOP conversation and ultimately become the architects of uh, the biggest last stand for Trump uh, ever. So Um, Joe Biggs is their propagandist. Zachary Rail is the leader of the Philadelphia Proud Boys, former leader now, um, who marched with Biggs on January 6th in front of the pack uh, of of rioters who marched toward the Capitol. And it was uh, in between the ellipse and the Capitol where Joe Biggs came upon a, a police barricade. He breached that barricade allowing the other rioters to go through and giving this sort of uh, tacit endorsement to storming the Capitol. It was a pivotal moment um, for this entire riot. And it's for that breach that Joe Biggs created uh, that they got the terrorism enhancement on their charges. Now, Judge Tim Kelly said, colloquially, I'm not going to liken what the Proud Boys did uh, to you know plotting to blow up a government building. Um, However, it was the blowing up of the American process of the peaceful transfer of power um, that makes this terrorism enhancement uh, accurate. And it's a big reason why their sentences are, are, are so substantial here. Andy,
0: I wanted to um, ask you about this comment of Joe Biggs. November 10th, 2020, that's just after the news networks called the election for Joe Biden, Biggs posted a blog post on his website, the Biggs Report, in which he called for, well, directly for civil war, saying, buy ammo clean your guns, get storable food and water. Um, he wrote in this now-deleted post, ''Be prepared. Things are about to get bad before they get better.'' But, you know, that was public. But it's not only about bigs here. We're going from the boots to the suits. And this is the issue that was raised uh, by um, Court, also raised by the lawyer, is they thought they were being patriots for the president of the United States, who said that we're talking about a stolen election. So, certainly, Donald Trump knew about this. Talk about what these sentences mean for— um Donald Trump who has been accused has been indicted over and over again.
4: Right, absolutely. I mean, the the proud boys can argue all they want that it was an accident that they, you know, were just responding to Trump, but that is their directive as a gang. Um not only have they consistently Uh, committed violence on behalf of Trump's words, on behalf of Tucker Carlson's words, the overall GOP grievance machine. Um, But they are close friends with Trump's top people. Enrique Tarrio uh, was in contact with Roger Stone, one of Trump's top confidants, on January 6th, leading up to January 6th. And after January 6th, Roger Stone admitted to me for the book That he'd been advising the Proud Boys politically and helping them become a more political machine uh, for years leading up to January 6th. These guys um, had an absolute line to Trump. I'm not trying to suggest that I have any evidence that they spoke or got word to Trump on the day. We don't know that yet, but certainly Trump knew that there was a street gang and a bunch of rioters out there waiting in the wings to to uh, uh, mobilize on his word. In fact, uh, uh, shortly after Trump posted a message on Twitter saying his followers, uh, you know, this this protest would be wild in Washington on January 6th. Joseph Biggs um, wrote to Enrique Tarrio, encouraging him to get, quote, radical and real men to answer that call to action. I mean, so, Andy, when
0: it comes to Trump knowing, we already know that on January 6th, when he was told that men were armed, um, coming to his rally, uh, Trump's response was to say, don't force people to go through metal detectors.
4: Absolutely. And Michael Cohen said, uh, prior to January 6th, uh, in an interview with CNN, he said, uh, Trump knows he has Proud Boys in the street um, and he's excited about it. January 6th, Cohen said at the time, is going to be really bad because Trump knows he has these very violent people in the street for him and he loves it. And, and, and that's just how it's played out over and over again before January 6th. And, and let's not forget, the Proud Boys, despite their leaders being in jail, are still doing all of the same violence uh, on GOP's grievances that they were before. It, it continues today
0: particularly going after drag shows, particularly going after um, uh, pro-choice protesters and abortion clinics?
4: Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, people ask, you know, well, the national... Leaders are all behind bars. They've dissolved their national chapter. Doesn't this mean the end of the Proud Boys? And certainly it does not, because they work locally. Uh, they they are at abortion clinics. They are at school board meetings. They are you know mobilizing on words of other you know big GOP voices like Ron DeSantis across the country at rapid clip. And so the only thing that's really changed about the Proud Boys since these convictions and these sentences is that they're not amassing on a a huge level for trump like they used to but nobody's doing that and that may change during the election Um, I, i think it's important to note that if the proud boys dissolved tomorrow or they changed their name which i don't expect it doesn't change the fact that we have an ingrained extremist crisis at the highest levels of government on the right and 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 that the proud boys have done What Judge Kelly called, you know, the breaking of the tradition of peaceful transfer transfer of power. They have so normalized violence that you can expect to be scared at a polling place, be scared at an abortion clinic, um, be scared at, uh, uh, you know, American political rallies because we have this extremist contingent, and that is the damage that the Proud Boys did and continue to do to this day.
0: Andy Campbell, want to thank you for being with us, senior editor at HuffPost. His book is We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Coming up, we go to Minnesota, where water protectors on trial facing five years in prison for engaging in peaceful protest against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline. Back in 30 seconds. Law covered by the clash. This is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Minnesota, where a nonviolent water protector is facing up to five years in prison for taking part in an action against the Enbridge Line Three Tar Sands oil pipeline. Two years ago, in August of 2021, Milen Villar attached herself to a twenty-five-foot bamboo tower erected to block a Line 3 pumping station in Aiken County. Villard, who lives in Colorado, had come to Minnesota to take part in a wave of Indigenous-led acts of civil disobedience to stop the pipeline. She was filmed during the action.
2: I'm here for my daughter and my daughter's daughter. And all their children and grandchildren. I'm here because there is a real climate crisis and nobody seems to care. I'm here because that's the only thing I can do right now. I have to show up and I have to defend this land and I have to defend the rights of the people who have been on this land forever.
0: Between December 2020 and September 2021, police in Minnesota made more than 1,000 arrests, Milen Villard is just the second water protector facing felony charges to go to trial. Her trial began this week. Milen is joining us, along with Tara Houska, an indigenous lawyer, activist, and founder of the Ginu Collective. She's Ojibwe from the Cochiching First Nation. Tara Houska was also arrested in 2021 for participating in a nonviolent action against Line 3. Um, Milene Villard, um, talk about the trial this week. The prosecution has presented their case. Um, go back two years for us and talk more about why you came to Minnesota and exactly what you did and hope to accomplish.
2: Yes, thank you, Amy. It's uh, an honor to be here with Tara today. Um, two years ago, I— um, heard the call from um, Indigenous women and Two-Spirit um, people to come to Minnesota to fight Line 3 and was really moved by their plight. Um, it's It's been um, a long fight for them. And so my daughter decided to come here first and then I followed her um, later to also participate in nonviolent protection. Um, on that day, on that particular day, August 26th, we um there was a uh bamboo and wire tower that was uh, erected which I climbed to the top of and um uh locked in into with um another um water protector. And um we were trying to stop the construction of the Swatara pumping station, which by the way just had um um, an aquifer breach happening just a, exactly a month ago. Um, so we're uh, we were trying to avoid just that. Um, and Bridge has a really bad track record for our spills um, going back to the 90s or 80s. And um, and so we were outraged that the permit had even been uh, accepted and delivered. And so going there was really fighting for the people who have been fighting for seven years alongside them in solidarity with them and uh, fighting for the rights to clean water, clean air, which the fossil fuel industry has destroyed, basically. So we're destroying our planet. We're destry- destroying our way of life. We're destroying the water up here in Minnesota, where the headwaters of the Mississippi River uh, are, where um, – It's the land of a thousand lakes um, and we're destroying those lakes Um, and went under 200 bodies of water. And we were up there to say no, basically no to destroying the land, destroying the water, destroying the air, destroying the way of life of everybody. Milan,
0: Milan, I'm wondering how you feel the trial is going and why you refuse to take a plea deal. On the felony charge, um you're facing also a ten thousand dollar fine
2: right um I could not sign the paper saying that I was guilty because I am not the guilty party here, and bridge is destroying is violent the just destroying the land to put a pipeline that that we know is going to leak is violence against the 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 earth the water the people who live on this land and depend on that um so yeah i could not take the plea deal i'm not guilty and if the state wants to prove me guilty then they have to do that which so far has not happened and yet i'm still here fighting i'm still in court i'm going to testify today and and even Sheriff Gaida, who extracted us in the most careless manner, um, was has not been able to prove or has not said that I was doing anything wrong up there. I'm a nonviolent activist. I believe in nonviolence. Everything I do that's my daily life is nonviolence. So I, you know, I was up there, I was not obstructing legal process, which is, the charge I got, um, I was just up there protesting an abomination, um, and so um, I would say the trial is is a farce right now at this point. Um, my lawyer is at our hands width wow. with reminding the court and the prosecution about procedures, about the law, about legalese 101 that everybody should respect in court and it's not happening it's not happening and there's so many reasons that my case should have been dismissed by now um and i'm gonna testify today
0: well, you're very brave to come on, and, um, you know, we're talking amidst, well, after Lahaina was destroyed, uh, as a result of climate change in Hawaii, um, after, uh, the south of the United States, uh, particularly Florida and the Carolinas have been hit hard by by Hurricane Adalia. Tara Houska, I wanted to bring you into this conversation um, as an indigenous lawyer and also a peaceful protester against Line 3. You joined us on Democracy Now! after you were released from jail in 2021. You would posted photos on social media with bloodied welts on your arms after you were shot with rubber bullets during your peaceful action. Can you talk about the escalation of police violence at the time and um, how you feel these cases are now going?
7: Since Standing Rock and the Resistance Against Dakota Access Pipeline, which you were also at and documented some of the police brutality that occurred there, the escalation of police, both in the direct uh, confrontations with nonviolent protesters and also just the prosecutorial system against specifically environmental activists has grown exponentially worse. Um, and I, I know that there's been coverage on, on your program and others um, about the Atlanta Cop City protests. Uh, you know, you just had on someone talking about how they had added on a felony terrorism enhancement that was up front with the, with the protesters down at Cop City. 42 people charged with domestic terrorism. Um, I feel like the, the body of ALEC is around the entire state. All the state legislatures trying to push felony protest bills that happened in Minnesota, too. They didn't pass it successfully here, but they've passed it other places. Um, the crackdown on environmental protest is nationwide. And it is, I think, uh, a system in which you're seeing everyone trying to push and see just what they can get away with.
0: Um, there are several other Line 3 cases still open next month. Three Anishinaabe women, elders, Winona LaDuke, Tanya Obed, Dawn Goodwin, will go on trial together on gross misdemeanor-critical infrastructure charges related to a January 21st 20, uh, protest. Um, if you can talk about uh, what this all means as the world becomes increasingly conscious of the climate catastrophe— um, and also the relationship between Embridge security and uh, Minnesota police and authorities.
7: We think about the words critical infrastructure. What is actually critical infrastructure to the survival of human beings and every other being on this earth? It's water. Right. That is the actual critical infrastructure designating an oil pipeline. Uh, for fossil fuels bound somewhere else, the active destruction of our own chance of survival of my daughter 's chance of survival of, at her daughter 's daughter it is just an abomination right. of where we 're at as a species. Um, you mentioned all those you know, increasing signs of climate crisis that is occurring um, you know, talking about the uh, global boiling right we 're not even saying global warming anymore it's global boiling, and species extinction is just so painful. To watch, And then, you know, you have these attempts by human beings against other human beings who are trying to at least give nature a voice, at least try to do something different, um, actively pushing against and trying to suppress that voice um, where you see in here in Minnesota, instead of the company, um, you know, behind the behind closed doors, paying off law enforcement to defend their pipeline and defend their project. It was an open agreement, overseen by the state of Minnesota, overseen by the Democratic government, government overseen by Tim Walls and Peggy Flanagan here in Minnesota. Uh, you know that still stands. They pay them over eight million dollars, closing in on nine million. The biggest accept acceptor, accept accept um, the biggest person that accepted the money, like or the the agency that accepted that money, was the Department of Natural Resources. That's the people who are tasked to actually defend the wetlands, which just got deregulated right like all the nation's wetlands just got deregulated because the epa no longer has oversight that's what's happening and that's the global picture um, that's happening not just here but around the world where land offenders are not just criminalized or killed for defending the earth
0: I want to end with Milen, who is speaking to us right before testifying in court. Are you afraid of the sentence you face if you were found guilty five years in prison? Or are you hopeful that perhaps you will go the route of the Montana youth, who where a judge has ruled uh, on their behalf um, around uh, climate protests and climate activism and challenging the state for engaging in uh, destruction of the
2: planet? i I wouldn't say that I'm afraid um, I entered this um, fully um, aware of the risk I was taking and not really um, believing wow. that the justice system in this court would be served um, would be um, hearing me fully um, so i I am aware of what I'm risking uh, and I'm going um. I'm going there fully aware of the risk, um, but I'm not scared. I know where I stand. I know what my purpose is here. I'm um, grateful for you to, for hearing us uh, today. Um, what does your T-shirt say? My T-shirt says Defend the Sacred. This is the T-shirt I was wearing um, on that day. Um, this is why I was there the sacred is the earth the nature the water um the people who live on this um on this land and um and all the animals and and um earth sky yeah, you know, just well what the people have been um talking about and doing forever Milan. Um, and
0: I want to thank yes. you very much for being with us, Milen Villard, water protector on trial in Minnesota, for taking part in action against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline. She will testify today in court. She faces five years in prison if convicted. Tara Houska, indigenous lawyer, activist and founder of the Ginu Collective. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, I'm Amy Goodman, as we continue to look at the climate emergency. The Guardian's reporting Hurricane Idalia might become the costliest climate disaster to hit the United States this year. The Category 3 left a trail of destruction from Florida to the Carolinas. Forecasting company AccuWeather is projecting the storm might cost $20 billion dollars. Last week, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, revealed the United States had already suffered at least 15 weather disasters that caused $1 billion or more in damage. While the costs of the climate crisis continue to escalate, climate justice groups are warning the government must do far more to combat the climate emergency. We're joined now by Rihanna Gunwright. She was one of the architects of the Green New Deal. She's just written a new piece for Hammer and Hope headlined, Our Green Transition May Leave Black People Behind. She writes, I'm an architect of the Green New Deal. I'm worried the racism in the biggest climate law endangers our ability to get off fossil fuels. Rihanna Gunwright, take it from there. Explain why you're so deeply concerned.
3: So, I am really deeply concerned because the Inflation Reduction Act, the biggest climate law basically in U.S. history, is setting up the framework for the clean energy transition to come. And so far, there are many provisions in the bill that just structurally leave out Black people um, or just— don't address the needs, particularly of black frontline communities. And at the same time, the debates and the decisions about how to implement the IRA, in those um, in those cases, too, we're seeing a trend now. of the desires of black frontline communities, again, in particular, being set aside, um, in some cases being dismissed. And it's very troubling because this is— What's going to sort of guide the clean energy transition for the foreseeable future? And as we've seen before in U.S. history, there's often uh, a sense that we can get to justice later. But when does later come? And so all of that, that amalgamation of factors is what has got me worried at the moment.
0: Rihanna, you write, the racist compromises and the marginalization of black people and their demands that facilitated the bill's passage have seeped into the climate movement. Talk very specifically about what you mean.
3: So, what I mean is that in order to pass the IRA, uh, Senate Democrats' leadership in particular— had to broker a deal with Senator Manchin. And part of that deal, deal included compromises, particularly around um, allowing, opening up lease sales in the Gulf, um, as well as compromises that allowed the building of the Mountain Valley pipeline to move forward. And it's worth noting that both of those things have been blocked uh by court challenges from environmental groups and climate justice activists. So both of those things were moved forward um, despite those challenges by um, by the compromises in order to let the IRA pass. And so when I say that it's seeped in, it's what I mean is that in doing that, Right. You created um, some momentum where there was a sense that some amount of of racism was a necessary cost for the IRA to move forward, because both with the Gulf sales, uh, the lease sales in the Gulf and with the mountain valley pipeline those things disproportionately impact black frontline communities and so when i say that it's seeped in i have noticed in debates there's been a real sidelining i think you see it in particular in the conversation about permitting reform there's been a real sidelining of black brown and indigenous voices and their calls for a just transition in the debates about how to effectively implement the IRA. And I mean, when I talk about permitting reform, I mean, there is a big push in particular to weaken NEPA, despite the fact that NEPA, uh, the National Environmental Permitting Act, um, is one of the main tools that frontline communities have to protect themselves and push back against polluting infrastructure. And the real troubling part about that being forefronted in the permitting reform debate is that the IRA also takes a real all-of-the-above strategy when it comes to the energy transition. So that means that it's uh, basically investing in tons of technologies across the board. A lot of that's in renewable energy. A lot of that's in technologies that a lot of people argue can help prop up fossil fuels, uh, even as they could help decarbonize at the same time. And so what that means is that you're going to, along with the concessions, still see a build out of fossil fuel infrastructure as well as well as renewable energy infrastructure. And so gutting NEPA actually puts frontline communities in a really vulnerable position, even if it is to speed up renewable energy transitions, where at the same time, you have a lot of climate justice activists also calling for permitting reform, but in a way that protects democratic participation that is about right. increasing the amount of planning that is about... Making community consultations upfront more powerful, less antagonistic, trying to sort of build a, a procedure for infrastructure decisions that helps build trust. But those um, those recommendations are largely being sort of pushed aside, talked about as insufficient because I think. Like I said, in part because of the concessions that happened with the IRA to pass it, there is an increasing um, sort of narrative about the tension between justice and urgency that's presenting a false choice that says essentially we have to do whatever we have, we have to. Increase um, the deployment of renewable energy by any means necessary, even if that means reducing democratic participation, because there's just, like I said, a narrative that says we don't have enough time to make sure that the transition is just if that if there is any chance um, that that doesn't come in the form of just like regulatory streamlining across the board.
0: Rihanna, you call for the expansion of Justice40, a Biden administration initiative that aims to direct 40 percent of the benefits of federal clean energy and other climate investments to disadvantaged communities. How can this be expanded? And how can the Biden administration nationally subsidize divestment from fossil fuels? We'll end with those two questions. Can you repeat that last question? How can uh, the Biden administration nationally subsidize divestment from fossil fuels equitably?
3: Oh, okay. Totally. So on the first part, so Justice 40 is the administration's, pretty much their signature environmental justice initiative, which says that 40 percent of the benefits of climate and energy investments need to go to disadvantaged communities. I call for the expansion of Justice 40 because Justice 40 was actually initiated before the IRA. Um, And so it is unclear right now whether Justice 40 will apply to IRA spending across the board. What we have seen with Justice 40 is there is a tendency to mostly include programs that are sort of legacy environmental justice programs like weatherization, energy efficiency, or just programs that are sort of siloed in the environmental justice camp and not necessarily spending related to the energy transition more broadly. So I'm calling for Justice 40 to cover all of that, right? Because that's Brianna, how we make So that transition does, in fact, benefit everyone if all of the spending is included. At the same time, I do note that, like, Funding for projects and technologies that frontline communities have repeatedly opposed, say, like carbon capture and storage, that shouldn't be included in Justice 40. At the end of the day, it's just disrespectful if that is not actually the vision that frontline communities are um have for their role in the green transition. They want to get polluting infrastructure out entirely. So we should be investing in renewable energy projects that they're asking for, whether that's community solar, microgrids, public, um, uh, publicly owned and provided renewable energy. Much excuse me, microgrids, those are the sort of things that over and over frontline communities and the groups that have re, that represent them say that they want to get out of a green transition. Rihanna, we're going to, the Biden administration, the, how to we have, we have to leave We have less than 30, 30 from, seconds,
0: Rihanna, just less than 30 seconds on that last point sure. of the Biden administration.
3: Yep. For fossil fuel, um, divest, well one is there have to be no new leases um, for fossil fuel projects. Um, the second is that we really need to form, at the very least, a commission um, to discuss how do we have a responsible wind-down of fossil fuels. Right now, we're leaving uh, the divestment and wind-down of the fossil fuel industry up to the industry entirely. And what we're seeing over and over is they're not investing in that. And it's very increasingly unlikely that they, in fact, will be investing in low carbon energy in a real way. And so without really a publicly planned transition, we're going to end up with a transition off of fossil fuels. That's not just inequitable for black people, but that harms workers, residents, everyone, consumers, and especially folks from regions where fossil fuels are a big part of that local economy.
0: Rihanna Gunright, I want to thank you so much for being with us, one of the architects of the Green New Deal. We'll link to your piece in Hammer and Hope, Our Green Transition May Leave Black People Behind. Coming up, we look at why thousands of Afghan evacuees are being arbitrarily detained overseas, waiting to come into the United States. Back in 20 seconds. <laughs> By two yards from the Labor Day classic. Sorry to bother you. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Thousands of Afghan evacuees seeking to come to the United States remain arbitrarily detained in other countries two years after the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. Many of the Afghans are living in camps in the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kosovo, that are largely coordinated, facilitated, or under the control of the U.S. government. The Center for Constitutional Rights and the group Muslim Advocates recently sued the Pentagon, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, seeking governmental records about the relocation and detention of Afghan evacuees. We're joined now by Saraf Dost. She's an attorney and birth. Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Can you lay out, Sadaf, um, the extent of the problem, how many people are being held, and what they need to come into the United States?
6: Thank you so much for raising awareness and covering this issue. Um, Just as you had mentioned, uh, thousands of Afghan civilians are being arbitrarily detained at these sites, and this comes after Um, 20 decades of occupation and invasion and war at the hands of the U.S. government. So we're still seeing that two years after the U.S. declared the end of its war in Afghanistan, um, Afghan civilians still continue to be suffering human rights and humanitarian violations uh, at the hands of the U.S. government. Um, The numbers, because of the very limited reporting that is out there, is uncertain, but it What limited reporting is out there indicates that it's over 3,000 people, up to 5,000 or more. Um, And these sites, just as you have mentioned, the ones that that are more reported about are in the UAE, Qatar and Kosovo, but other sites in Albania, Germany, possibly others exist as well. Uh, And what this lawsuit hopes to achieve is to provide more information to humanitarian, human rights, and civil society organizations who uh, really are hoping to hold the government accountable and meaningfully engaged to intervene and, and prevent the continued detention of these Afghan civilians. And, of
0: tell us who these people are and what they're—I mean, the site in Kosovo, for example, has been nicknamed Little Guantanamo. What happens if they leave the camps? And what was their relationship with the United States as the U.S. occupied Afghanistan? Why did they flee Afghanistan?
6: Yeah, and— um, In in Kosovo, it is nicknamed Little Guantanamo because of the horrifying conditions. Uh, Last year, there was a protest staged by those Afghans detained at at these uh, sites, asking for better conditions, asking um, any government that has a hand in facilitating or coordinating uh, these sites for better conditions. Um, These individuals include human rights activists who had to flee Afghanistan because the Taliban is now... Um, and searching for those individuals. Uh, This includes journalists, some who worked with news organizations based out here in the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, It includes women rights activists uh, and just lawyers, prosecutors, judges, as well as your everyday Afghan civilians who had to flee because of the compounding humanitarian and human rights crisis in Afghanistan.
0: I wanted to turn to a clip that we have uh, to play of a person uh, who is waiting. Um, This is a clip uh, that we got uh, that—you can introduce it—of a young person um, who is waiting to come into the country, Sadaf. Let's turn to the clip.
5: Half the passengers fell into the water and were swallowed up by the sea. Those who were left in the boat tried to stay alive with the help of their tubes. About two hours later, the French police arrived and threw tubes at us to save us. Those boys who were in the boat also took along six bodies of those who had died in the boat. The rest of the Afghans were lost. Half of the survivors were taken up by the U.K. police. I never believed I would survive. I thought I was dying and was ready to die. I asked God to forgive my sins. I also remembered my mother and father. I kept swimming for the sake of my parents and my brothers and sisters because we have left home and are going through all of this suffering for their sake. I was fast losing the strength to swim, but I kept trying very hard to keep afloat.
0: That was a clip of a, a young man um, who was refuge. Uh, who was uh, saved, uh, 22-year-old Idris. Last month, a boat full of mostly Afghan refugees capsized in the English Channel as it tried to reach Britain from France. Six of the people died. Um, talk about the lengths people are going to.
6: The lengths are extreme, and, and what we're hearing from Afghan civilians is that they don't want to leave Their home. No person wants to leave um, their family and their loved ones, and where they built a life, uh, a place that they are familiar with. But they have no other option because of the United States' uh, hasty withdrawal and and the ground that it laid for what we're seeing now today. Um, There are other reports of Afghans here in in the U.S. southern border that are. facing very similar um, conditions where they're not being welcomed. They are traveling um, multiple continents, 12 to 14 countries, um, just to come here in the U.S. and, and be locked up um, in discriminatory policies that are really targeting um, Muslims and, and Afghans. Well,
0: I want to thank you so much, Doos for joining us, Afghan-American attorney, Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And we can will continue to follow this case. To see our podcast, video and audio podcast, and sign up for our news website, you can go to democracynow.org, our newsletter. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.